Well, this morning, if you open up to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we are again in the introduction to 1 Peter, looking at these verses. Last week, we looked at the author, at least the human author that God chose to use to give us this letter of 1 Peter. Today, we will look at the, at the audience and a very critical factor for those who are going to read this letter and get anything out of it. Let me give us an illustration to connect with this passage. See, I'm old enough to where when I was a kid, they were just venturing into uh, electronic toy land. Right now, I don't think you can buy a toy that's not electronic. But back then, they were just starting to come out with some toys that were electronic. And... You know, they were just coming out with handheld calculators as well, okay? So I I am getting a few years on me here. Those devices, if you got like a really good one, they had the ability to go battery or the deluxe ones had a plug-in cable. Now, unlike, and you're thinking right now, especially the kids, big deal. Everything I own has a plug-in cable. But what you have now, it actually recharges the battery and supplies power for the device. No such thing when we were kids. There was no such thing as rechargeable batteries. So if you plug the device in, the device had to make a decision. Do I run on the battery or do I run on the electrical power coming out of the wall? And you had to throw a switch on it to tell it what to do. It couldn't think for itself. You had to help it. And so I can remember I, used, I had a couple of devices that if you, if you flipped it the wrong way and plugged it into the wall, you were in trouble. Right? You either broke the device, the device didn't work, or it just fritzed out. Right? If you had a calculator and you were using a calculator, the thing would think and the numbers would blink. And remember, there were those old red numbers, right? And they would blink and fritz and weird, and then you'd get these readouts of squares and squiggles. No numbers, just squares and squiggles. And you'd realize, ah, I've got this thing set for battery and I've plugged it in. Right? Well, what we're going to read in the text today is, is sort of like a setting on the Christian device. You can set, and I think the only setting that we have any influence over is our minds. You can set your mind a certain way. But if you put it on the wrong setting, First Peter will not make any sense to you, and life's events are going to fritz your circuitry out. They're going to come in, and you kind of won't know what to do with it because you're on the wrong setting. So let's look here in this verse here with me and consider the setting that Peter's going to encourage us in. Chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. That's our setting. To those, this is the audience to whom Peter is writing, and this is the necessary setting for them to be able to receive what he's writing. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's writing to a region that's sort of north of the Taurus Mountains in modern-day Turkey, folks that are there. You are elect exiles, listen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, before we get into this setting a little bit, 
Remember, I think everything in this book could sort of be tethered to this verse. Go over in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. You, you just don't venture far from this point in all the things that are in this letter. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All right, now let, let me for a moment extract that verse from a Sunday morning church setting. Right, because you know you read your Bible differently right here this morning than you do when you're living your life on the front lines, when you're in real life. You know, I hate to say this isn't real life because in, in some ways it's more real life than anything else we're doing. It's, it's us putting God as the attention bearer of our lives. And I think that's more real life than anything else we do. But when we go to live life in this realm, it doesn't feel like Sunday morning church, does it? And to some degree, this morning is, is a distraction from your life, from the difficulties, from suffering. You can come in here and put your suffering down for a moment. But I don't want you to do that. I want you to read that verse with one hand on your life. I mean, just the, just the last few days, a bunch of conversation with folks, and this would be typical of conversations on a regular basis. But in the last few days, here's real life for people in the church, talking to a father and a mother who are trying to hold it together through their young son's diagnosis and treatment for cancer. And that messes with your world. Talking to wives, more than one, who are struggling to stay in marriages that have become very dysfunctional, very discouraging, without reward, with a sense of hopelessness that this is all my life is going to be. That's, that's real life. I've had several conversations in the last few weeks with, uh, with you guys who are small business owners who have bumped into the economy change and the effect that it's had on your business. And you, you've had to figure out how to deal with a whole fresh set of feelings that have come with that not just business decisions you've got to make. It's fears. It's uncertainty about the future. And how, how, what do I do? You know, and, and typical pattern. It's a typical pattern for small business owners all over the place, not just for us. Small business owners typically had a career in one area that they sort of cashed all that in and stuck it all into a small business and jumped in with both feet and are trying to make that thing work. And when it's thriving, there's some great things about it. It's always a pain to be a business owner. I know that there's some aspects to that, that the buck stops with you, and that makes the business a little different. But when things go south and people have to be fired and equipment needs to be sold off and pulling back decisions need to be made and you get to the edge of, are we going to make it? There's a whole new realm of fear there. And 
And it's not as, not, not as though you can just necessarily jump back into your old career because that was 10 years ago. That was 20 years ago. So you're in the horns of this dilemma. How do we keep going with something that looks like it can't provide for us, but I can't go back? And, and you're thrust into these fears. Right? Many of you know what that feels like. So th- these are real-life scenarios just listening to you literally in the last two or three days. And, and this verse says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Right? That verse just can't live in this room. It's got to get out of here. It's got to go with you. It's got to go home with you. <clears throat> no, hugely important is where we start in this letter with the Apostle Peter wasting no time getting to a critical matter of how it is that the audience is going to think about their own lives so that they can make good of all these suggestions he's going to make. And he's going to make a lot of suggestions. He's going to bring a lot of insights. But if you don't start here, it's almost like everybody find the panel where the device setting is on your life and check and see. Is it set to elect exile? Is that who you are? This term, Edmund Clowney, in the beginning of his commentary on 1 Peter says, these terms, this elect exile, gives us the key to Peter's whole letter. Peter is writing a traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims. He reminds them that their hope is anchored in their homeland. They are called to endure alienation as strangers, but they have a heavenly citizenship and destiny. If you lose sight of that, then you really can't benefit from what's coming in the letter. So let's, let's unpack just some words here. This would almost just be a good vocabulary study because we have these words like elect, the word exile, and, and the word foreknowledge because the way in which this sentence is put together, you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. All right, so let's, let's first look at this word elect. I think I put this in your outline. The word elect, this sets our understanding of how God is associated with us and the events and people in our lives. Right? That word elect is telling you, it's communicating something to you about how is it that God associates with you? What is his relationship with you based on? Why does God do the next thing he's going to do in your life? What has to do with the fact that you are his elect. You have been relocated into a category called God's elect. And you have to see what the Bible says about that category, that it is a different category. Right? Look in the use of this word, Wayne Grudem. He describes the noun eclectos when he says the word in the New Testament 22 times always refers to persons chosen by God from a group of others who are not chosen and chosen for inclusion among God's people as recipients of great privilege and blessing. Right? That's the clear use of that word as a noun throughout the New Testament. It is electing, choosing, it gets translated both ways, out of a group and then into another group. 
So there's going to be a little bit of a dynamic here that you're going to have to be uncomfortable with because it is uncomfortable. Out of this group is going to come some people and then God's going to begin to treat them in a way that he doesn't treat these. Now immediately that, that messes with us, doesn't it? We're good Americans. Not even God can do that. He could go to court over stuff like that. And remember, there is no court of appeal when it comes to God. God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And by the way, he does what's right when he does what he does. Sam Storms highlights other uses of this same word structure. He says, the verb to choose or to elect, eklego, is also found, coincidentally, 22 times in the New Testament. And he says the word, which means election, a different Greek word, <clears throat> is used seven times, all of which refer to salvation. The word frequently translated to predestine or predestinate, another Greek word, is found six times in the New Testament. All right, so why am I highlighting that? Well, clearly this, this concept, this electing concept, this choosing concept of God is frequently mentioned in Scripture. It is, a, it is a challenging doctrine. It is not an easy doctrine. It, it has rough edges on it. It has problems that have been created by man. But one thing you cannot do with this is ignore it. I mean, it'd be unwise to ignore something that gets mentioned once in the Bible. That would be unwise. It made the pages of a limited book. Pay attention. Something that gets mentioned that many times, 22 times in this form, 22 times in another form, seven here, a few more there. Apparently, with those landmines all over the place, you're supposed to get blown up by this thing. You're supposed to step right into the doctrine of election, and it's supposed to go off on you and affect your life. All right, so I asked this question as I studied through and looked at this. What is this term intended to accomplish why is this in the Bible so many times? What's the effect it's supposed to have on us? Is our first knee-jerk response supposed to be, whoa, wait, time out. I, you know, I can't even go anywhere with this topic until you make me to understand how it is that God can choose people, put some in a group over here, and then exclude these others. I, you know, I can't even go anywhere with that. <clears throat> All right, well, let's, let's see how the word gets used and we might be aiming at the wrong dynamic when that's the first thing that we're concerned about because that's not the first thing the Bible's concerned about. And why, why is the Bible using this term? First Peter, if we stay in First Peter, it gets used four times in First Peter alone. First Peter chapter 1, we've just read that those who are listening to this teaching from Peter, they are elect exiles. So they are chosen uniquely by God. Chapter 2, verse 4. Speaking of Christ, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen. There it is again. That's the word. Chosen and precious. Now, I want you to, I want you to look at the context where this word gets used. It's used to refer to Christ here. It's going to be used again there in verse 6. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and and precious, chosen and precious. You begin to get the sense that when, when God chooses and sets these folks into a group, there is this affection associated with the use of this word. 
You are chosen and precious. And these are the feelings that God is revealing about who the Son of God is to him. And then he turns on and uses the word again in chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And depending on how liberal a translation wants to get there, that, that, that word, uh, his own possession, it's a uniqueness. It, it wants to carve out that you are special to God. That's what it's trying to communicate. You're not common. You're not everyday people. You are a special people to him. You are his precious chosen people. That's how that word gets used, and that's the context again for it, describing us. In order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, do you understand the context here? All these contrasts are having to do with into this pool of humanity, God sovereignly reached and chose and elected and placed into a category that would be precious, unique, chosen. Now, listen, do you hear the language here? And again, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I just, I know it's an issue for folks. When you were in this category, once you were not a people, precious to God. Once you had not received mercy, but now in this group, you have received mercy. Do you see that in the passage? I'm not asking you to like it. I'm not asking for you to own the idea from where it came. I'm just asking you if you can honestly say you see it in the passage. All right, well, why is this used? All right, now, where I just went is where many of us go with this doctrine. But can you notice for a second, that's not where these passages went. These passages didn't jump into, you know, there's this group, they get collected and they get moved over here, and the Bible doesn't do this. The camera stays on this group and says, well, why? That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. Listen, the camera doesn't stay on this group. God reaches in, collects, and, and elects, and chooses, and the camera gets on them now. And it goes over here to them, and it says, do you notice how God is treating these people? Do you notice that he considers them unique? and precious, and they are privileged, and they are under his blessing, and there are unexplainable things happening to this group. The camera stays on them. So when we see this group immediately, these instances communicate, one, unique affection, and two, purposeful intent. When you see this word used, those two broad categories emerge unique affection associated from God to this group and purposeful intent. It's accurate for you to say when we are in this group, uh, we are the recipients of unique affection from God and our lives have now taken on purposeful intentions by God that he designed, right? One more example. If you were to look into the Gospels and Acts, 
uh, where the, the word, the, the verb form of this word is used. It's used eight times in reference to Jesus choosing and electing his apostles. Right? Again, if we visit that day, there's a bunch of folks out there hanging around Jesus, and out of that bunch of folks is going to come 12. Now, if you let the camera stay on the rest of the audience, you're going to miss something about those 12. You're going to be sitting here trying to defend the rights of those who didn't get your right. Well, that's not where the Bible goes. I don't know how to take up their issue appropriately because the Bible doesn't really go into their issue much. What the Bible does is it takes the 12 and it focuses the gospel and acts on that 12. And we all have to admit, they get backstage passes to stuff. They get explanations no one else gets. Jesus does miracles. Actually, the Bible actually says the eyes of those who saw many of those miracles were smeared over by God so that they wouldn't fully understand what he was doing because if they fully understood, they wouldn't have crucified him. And if they hadn't crucified him, then we would have no savior. So backstage, there's this unique conversation taking place. So the apostles... They get to know Jesus in an intimacy that the crowd does not. They get to hear revelation from him that the crowd does not. They get to receive blessing through those three years of walking intimately with the Savior that the crowd does not. Same word used to describe them being the recipients of being God's chosen, God's elect, as describes us. See, the feature is on the uniqueness of this category that we are now in by God's choosing. All right, now, that word choosing often hangs around this word foreknowledge. It does so in theology, and it does so in many places in Scripture. All right, we find it here in 1 Peter. To those who are elect exiles, and he says where they are, he interrupts his thought. For those who are elect exiles, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God. That's the construction of the sentence. So you are elect according to foreknowledge. Right? So foreknowledge needs to be a word that we look carefully at here just for a moment. Wayne Grudem says, foreknow can refer not just to God's knowing a fact, but to his knowing people with a personal, loving, fatherly knowledge. Thus, according to foreknowledge suggest according to God's fatherly care for you before the world was made. Right? That's, that's what's wrapped up in that according to foreknowledge. So you are elect, you are chosen by God. You individually with a name on you are chosen by God according to God's fatherly care for you before the world was made. That's an accurate statement about everyone who is belonging to God by his choosing. John Murray says many times in Scripture, know, the word, the use of the word know, has a pregnant meaning which goes beyond that of mere cognition. It is used in a sense practically synonymous with love or to set regard upon, to know with peculiar interest, delight, affection, and action. Right? And if you don't know that that word is used that way, you read the Bible sometimes thinking like, wow, this is like a Bible for idiots, huh? And Adam knew his wife, Eve. 
Of course Adam knew his wife. Come on, it's his wife. He had to have known who she was. That's not what that word's trying to communicate to you. Right? Because usually on the tail end of Adam knew his wife, children pop up. So it's not just like he sat and stroked his beard and wondered, you know, I know you, Eve, right? My wife? Yeah, I know you. Then this is not that kind of knowledge. This is intimate, unique affection between a husband and a wife. And that's how that word gets used throughout Scripture in many, many places. You come across passages like Jesus speaking to the crowd And he says, you know, there's coming a day when you're going to say, Lord, didn't we do this? And didn't we do that? And didn't we do this in your name? And I'm going to respond to you. I'm going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Now, do you read that to to think that the the, the, uh, all-knowing God, scratching his head going, I'm sorry, I'm where did you come from? <laughs> I've never seen you before. I don't, I, I, I'm sorry, I just don't know you. Is that what God's saying? No, he's talking about this kind of, you know, right? You have this kind of knowledge and then you have this kind of knowledge. I never knew you. You were not known by me this way. That's what this is referring to. Right, when you, and you find this, this purposeful dynamic w- with the use of this word. If you can turn quickly, I'll just, I don't want to take too much time on this. But Jeremiah is known by God this way. And he is called. So there's this purposeful intent in God as well. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, in verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, can you hear how the thought progresses here? Associated with using the word no for Jeremiah, I knew you is a consecration and an appointment. So that's all wrapped up in this. If you look at the, the, what it's trying to be communicated to Jeremiah in, chapter, in verse 5 is the knowledge, the knowing God has, has a consecrating you are set apart and you are appointed. You are purposefully, intentionally towards something. And that's what that word know is trying to communicate in Scripture. Right? Now turn, everybody turn with me, Romans chapter 8. Why is this word being used? I think the case made from Scripture is it's being used in order to to build in us a sense of confidence and hope for what God will do in our lives. Very easily, you and I are in touch with the way in which we're living our lives, the ways in which we fall short, the sin that so easily entangles us. And if that ever becomes the basis for what God can and can't do in our life, then then you're in trouble. You can have many, many weeks in your life when you think that there's no way God could be for me. Well, in that moment, you might want to remember which, which group are you in? Are you in this group, the one that has not received mercy, or are you in this group? Because if you're in this group, then you have reason to believe very differently about whatever it is God will do next 
in your life. I think that's the reason why we have this use of this word over and over and over again. All those descriptions I said just in the last few days, bumping into people's lives and their issues. A counsel we bring to ourselves and one we bring to another comes out of Romans chapter 8, right? Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All right, stop right there. This verse starts with, for we know. We have confidence. We know this. We're convinced of this. Why? What is the basis for you having so much confidence that God is in a bad situation? God's in a bad situation that you probably contributed to. Working that thing for good for you. Why, why do you have such confidence? Well, along comes our word for no, popping up right on the heels of why we have such confidence. Verse 29 This is why, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, that's an interesting word there. That word that starts verse 29, that word for. Right, let me get a little uh, grammatical on you for a moment. You won't really care about this, but you do care about the implications of it. That word for is called a causal conjunction. Now, here's what it means. It introduces, that word for in verse 29, it introduces the object, contents, or argument to which the preceding words refer. Right? So we've just heard an argument. And the argument is God causes all things to work together for your good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's the argument. That's a good argument. You should argue with yourself with that argument. Now what's the cause of that argument? Well, that word for turns us from the argument to the cause of it. The cause of it is those whom he foreknew. Not just, oh, God knew your name beforehand. No, foreknow all over the Bible has to do with what it sounds like for Jeremiah. It has to do with what it sounds like for God's intention that I have taken you out of this group intentionally before the foundations of the world that you might be the object, the unique object of my affection and care and blessing and revelation and going before you. So why would I have confidence God's causing and working for all things together for my good because I'm in this group chosen by God to uniquely receive his affection, care, blessing as my father. A decision made throughout scripture revealed to us before the world began. Not made after I had a really good week. And I got really serious about God and I had devotions every day and I confessed my sin to somebody and I didn't blow up on the kids. I mean, I'm telling you, I was so hot, man, and God was for me. I was, I was cooking. And God chose me. Well, that'd be a bad combination, wouldn't it? <laughs> because next week probably won't be like this week. <laughs> but what if you were chosen in him before the foundations of the world? 
then the basis for you ever being the unique objects of God's affection don't reside in you. They reside in God, don't they? Right? That's how this word gets used. Now, this construction here in, Rome, in Romans 8 needs to be just enjoyed for a moment because he begins this train of thought. He begins by saying you're foreknown and you're predestined and you're called and you're justified and you're glorified. Now, what you cannot miss along the way here is that it's the same group that travels through every one of those stages. Right? This is not like, I don't know, you, you go over to grab all that you can grab to bring it over to the sink over there, right? You know, you just want to, I don't know, you got a big pile of shrimp, you know, in your ice chest and you want to get it to the sink and you're not smart enough to bring the ice chest over there. So you're, you're picking it up and, you know, and, and along the way there's guts and shrimp and water all over the floor. And, you know, well, you got there with most of them, right? That is not this passage. In this passage, what, whom God foreknows, that's all it took. The deal is closed. He will lose none of them. He will start this deal and finish this deal. Right? I love Sam Storm's quote here. He says, Paul makes it clear that the objects of God's saving activity are the same from start to finish. Those whom he foreknew, not one more nor one less. These he predestined. And those whom he predestined, not one more nor one less. These he called. And those whom he called, not one more, nor one less, these he justified. And those whom he justified, not one more, and not one less, these he glorified. So how many people did God lose in the process? Not one. Right? Now, do you understand, this is the thought process that flows out of the argument that God is, is causing all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called, called according to his purpose. I think that refers to called according to his purpose. See, this is, this is the basis of that argument. And interesting, just like in 1 Peter, we find it in the context of suffering. We get into this whole discussion from verse 18 where Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, Christians, we are as well. I lost my place. Oh, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So into the midst of waiting patiently, groaning in this earthly dwelling of our lives, comes this ray of hope, this injection of God is at work. But Keith, how do you know he's at work? 
Well, God is at work causing all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Oh, that's a great verse. How do I know that's really true? How do I know it applies to me? Because you are one for whom God foreknew and predestined and called and justified and he will glorify. And then here's the argument is, listen, if God did that for you, if he who did not spare his own son, that's what's coming next in Romans chapter 8, but gave him up willingly for us all, how will he not with us freely give us all things? Right? You're in the moment where you're wondering, why doesn't God do something about this? God, why don't you fix this? And the question that's on the back end of that statement is, God, if you love me, you do something different here. And the argument is, first, to make sure you're aware that you're in a unique category with God. Yes, he loves you. And he's at work in your life in ways that you perhaps can't understand, bringing out this glory dynamic in your life. But if you're questioning whether he loves you or not, listen, if he gave up his own son, what, you, you think he's unwilling to spend a little energy to, to change something in your life? If God's willing to spend his own son, do you think he's not willing to touch your body and heal it? You think he doesn't, you know, that's, that's too much effort. That's, that's too much to ask of God to, to break into my world and provide some finances so I don't lose this or this doesn't, bad thing doesn't happen in my life. But if, if he gave his son, he's already shown you he will spend that which is of most value to him on those who are his own. That's what Romans 8 is about. And that argument in these few passages is, is showing us that what God begins, he's not going to lose any of it. He will get you to the end, to the realm of glory, to experience the glory of God. You're going to make it. Now, now listen. I think, I think this verse does for us, I, I watched this happen here, real life, experience of this. This could, this could be under the illustration, life is a roller coaster. Okay? We are uh, in Disney World four weeks ago, three weeks ago. First night we're there, you know, all the boys, even actually, all the kids are, are jazzed about going on roller coasters. Right? You just, just want to do roller coasters. That's the thing. So beeline for roller coasters. So the first roller coaster we get to, you know, everybody's talking trash. You know, we're ready to take this roller coaster down. It's not a problem. Uh, even Seth, seven years old, he's ready. You know, he's tall enough to go on the roller coaster, and he's got this thing. Well, the, the unique line, you know, there's lines in Disney World. I don't know if y'all knew that, but there's lines in Disney World. <laughs> Lots of them, long ones. Uh, so you're winding through this line. And before you actually get to where you get onto the car to blast off here, you, you get to walk past the people as they are coming down the track. And they stop right here for a moment. And then all this stuff happens. And then they take off and disappear in an instant. You, you watch their heads fly back. And they go from zero to 50 in about two seconds. Well, that's about all Seth needed to see. <laughs> I could tell the smack talk was over, and all of a sudden there's serious sobriety. First, there was nothing being said. You know, and we're in line for a while here. We're still moving an ant crawling pace, and I'm watching him. He doesn't quite look as excited anymore, and he's watching the next one. 
And then we move a little farther, and then they load up the next group of cattle. <laughs> he moves, and all of a sudden, now he's talk, he wants to talk now. And uh, uh, I, I, I don't know if I want to do this. <laughs> so, you know, we spend a little while there. I'm trying to talk him into it. There, there's no talking him into it at this point. So, all right, pal, well, we'll, we'll just we'll get out of line and, and we'll go wait at the end. So sure enough, we do. We, we go around at the end. All the other kids get on. And you, you go to the end and there's that, the, they take pictures of you on roller coasters now, right? Um, so no matter how good of a smack talker you are, you look like a scared idiot when they take the picture. <laughs> so here's the scared idiot shots. We're watching all of them take place. Then we finally find uh, our family. And <laughs> Well, when they get off, you ever seen people get off the roller coaster? You know, it, it's... It's, it's, it's a moment of conquering something in life, you know. There's enthusiasm. There's, yeah, they're kind of laughing about this. and oh, Well, this is what Seth's watching. He's watching, he's watching the celebration thing, and he's, you know, I don't know if he did this. Yeah, all of my family made it. <laughs> he, not, I don't, he didn't do that, actually, but he did recognize that no one's dead. <laughs> so they all make it through. Well, guess what Seth turns to me and says? I want to go. Right? So we went and rode the roller coaster, and he rode every roller coaster after that. He needed to be convinced that the people who get on the ride at this end, they, they make it through to the other side. So those whom he foreknew, you know, they get glorified, and they're celebrating at the end. So apparently, it, it, you know, from the pictures, okay, there's a few rough moments. But in the end, you celebrate, right? Well, welcome to life's roller coaster. That's what it's like. You get on, and along the way, stuff happens. Hard turns, drops, and you look like, you know, for just for a moment. And, but yet at the end, you get off like, Woo, high-fiving people you didn't even know. Yeah, man, that was great. You're looking at the picture, you're going, that was great. You look terrified right here. No, it's great. Listen, in the end, when you and I are glorified, we're going to get off this roller coaster and pumping our fist, celebrating like this is awesome. Even if some of the snapshots along the way don't quite look that way. When you bump into these words like election and predestined and foreknown, it's, it's almost as though God is taking snapshots at the end of the ride, not just the ones along the way. And he's saying, listen, everybody who gets on makes it. You're going to make it. And in the end, you're going to be celebrating. Hang in there. I need to hear that when I'm getting on the ride and the ride's just taking off and it's going too fast and I wasn't ready for that turn. Didn't know life was going to be this way. I didn't know my business was going to be this way. I didn't know my marriage was going to be this way. I didn't know I could be so physically sick. I didn't know that. All right, well, in the moment of your discouragement, make sure your setting is set to elect. You are God's elect. You cannot forget that as you walk through those moments. Wayne Grudem says, their status as sojourners, their privileges as God's chosen people, even their hostile environment in Pontus, Galatia, etc., were all known by God before the world began. All 
came about in accordance with his foreknowledge. And thus we may conclude all were in accordance with his fatherly love for his own people. Such foreknowledge is laden with comfort for Peter's readers and for us as well. So if I had to boil down this word elect, elect according to the foreknowledge of God means this, chosen to uniquely be the object of God's fatherly love, care, delight, affection, and purpose. So when that label gets on you, you are God's elect. That's what's being said to us in that moment. Now, now listen, don't make the mistake. I don't know what other settings there are. I don't know if there's multiple settings or just one or the other. It's ACDC kind of a thing. But if, if I don't keep that setting in mind, and I'm not mindful intentionally of that, well, the other setting must have some of the opposite dynamics to it. You know, so somehow I've, I'm, I'm not like the doctrine of election, so I've wanted to keep me in this category where there's no distinction in me and everybody else in the world. See, I'm just like everybody else. I'm just common man. It's all of humanity. Everybody's God's children after all. Untrue. Don't have time to unpack that. But if you walked in here thinking everybody's God's children, you have huge problems in the scriptures. Don't fall in love with American democracy so much that you are against the electing ability of God for reasons in himself perfectly for him to choose out of this group a group that he will uniquely bless, care for. You fight too much for this, guess where you'll put yourself? Right back in here. And now you're left with the question of, why would God do anything different for you? This person died. That tragedy happened. Why would God do anything different for you? Because you're just one of them. That's where your theology will take you. Or if you don't understand that, that God foreknew, or it was Jeremiah or you or whoever, from the foundations of the world, if that's not the basis for God foreknowing and choosing, well, then what is the basis? Well, the only other setting is the basis must be found in you. You must provide God the basis for him choosing you. Oh, welcome to a ride. You're the reason, huh? Well, if God's doing great things in your life, I hope you are doing okay controlling pride. Because <laughs> you wound God up because you're so great. He finally did something great because you're so great. So anything great in your life reflects your own greatness. Right? Well, that doesn't sound like the Bible. And then all the tragedies going on in your life? Well, the only place you can go with that is you can't go, you can't. You cannot go into the category of God foreknew you from the beginning all of your life, both the elect and the exile part. And he planned for there to be days in your life that would be just stinking hard. Whether you've been a good boy or not, he planned for those days. Well, if you don't have that in your theology and your life begins to stink, well, then I guess it stinks because what? You stink. <laughs> and so you're the source of all the, all the raw material that God can The only thing God can do in your life is what you provide for him to do. Because it's all about you. It's man-centered. It's about your morals. It's about your dedication. It's about your passion. Well, I heard something on the radio the other day. This, people should be taken off the radio when they say stuff like this. It was a Bible program. It was a call-in thing. This person calls in. There was an argument being had about whether or not somebody can lose their salvation or not. It was, this was the basis of the argument. And the guy sums up his position of confidence by saying, listen, 
all I know is if I'm doing the best I can, then, then I'm good with Jesus. <laughs> I wanted to throw up. Dude, you are never doing the best you can. Humble yourself just a little bit. There's never a day in your life when you couldn't do better than you're doing. Ever. Oh, no, I'm, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. Did you do it once or twice? Well, I did it once. Could you have done it twice and would have been better? Well, yeah, I guess so. I've been putting up with this for consistently all the time. You ever gossip about it, get a bad attitude? Well, yeah, a couple of times. Oh, well, then you didn't do your best, did you? Listen, you don't want uh, I'm doing my best theology. You want the mercy of God theology. And where'd that mercy of God come from? Well, it's been in God from the foundations of the world. And it's the basis out of which God would choose to relate to you uniquely the way he does. All right, give me just a minute. We're going to go through exiles pretty quick here. All right, you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. You are exiles also according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, these two words need to keep being borrowed by us as we move through 1 Peter. So I'm not going to unpack this greatly because it's going to get unpacked over and over again in 1 Peter. But it does need to help us with this thought. I'll put this in your outline. This this word, exiles, this sets our understanding of how we are to relate to the world we find ourselves living in. The two main realms of application in First Peter will, one, it will touch our hope, and secondly, our lifestyle. Over and over and over again, you're going to get Peter in this letter talking about what we put our hope in and what are our lifestyle choices. Over and over and over again. He's going to interact with those two things. It has everything to do with where you see your citizenship, what you call home, what group you're a part of. You know, that word, word exile, for those who are hearing it and reading it, it's, it's a rich word. It's a word that we don't have that as a history. You know, America, we don't know anything about these kinds of ideas. But if, if you had grown up here and you understood and you would have understood some of the Jewish dynamic you would have known a people, if you weren't a Jew, but if you were a Jew, you very much would have known what this is all about. Is referring back to the history of the Israelites, whom God gave a homeland, and he said, this is your promised land. This is where it happens for you. This is, this is the location that defines who you are. I've given this land to you. I've got boundaries for it. I'm going to do things in this land. I'm going to bless you in this place. And then along comes Nebuchadnezzar, folks from Babylon, and they come in and they take God's people into exile. And when they do, they strip them from everything that's about home. And they take them hundreds of miles away into another land. And they set up their lives there. They don't speak the language. They don't dress like anybody else. They don't eat the same food. Their customs are different. Their beliefs are different. Their worship is different. Everything is different. And so the only thing that you hear from these people while they're in that land is about this land. They're obsessed with one thing, going home. And you read them. You, you, know, you don't find uh, these guys trying to set up shop, so to speak, in Babylon. Now, they live in Babylon, and there's instructions on how to do that. But when you read Daniel, and you find Daniel's great moment of revelation in Daniel chapter 9, and he's overwhelmed because he's reading in the Bible, and what did he discover? He discovered how long it is that we're going to be here from Jeremiah. Seventy years. And we're getting towards the end. 
I mean, can you imagine? You're maybe 50 years into being gone from Jerusalem. 50 years. Forget about it already. Make a new home here. No. All Daniel can think about is going home. Guys, look what I found. We're almost to the end. We're going home. You remember Nehemiah? Peter talked about Nehemiah a few weeks ago. Nehemiah did something in the presence of the king. Remember Peter brought that out. You just, you just don't get unhappy in the presence of the king. The king wants happy people around him. Well, one day, he, Nehemiah is so much out of control here. The guy's out of control. He's depressed. And he's wearing it. So the king asked him, Nehemiah, what, what's up with you? This, this, this is the look of sadness. And Scared to death that he couldn't control his grief. He explains to the king why it is that he's sad. Do you remember his explanation? He's sad because of the condition of Jerusalem. He's in Babylon. But his grief is over his home. If you will, these guys all got drafted to the Super Bowl champions. If you lived in Babylon, this is the country that's taken over everybody. And you're living there? In the headquarters, it didn't matter. That's not home for us. We're not one of you. That's home for us. And they were obsessed. And so when Peter uses this language, he, he's trying to remind us of who we are in this location. Obsessed about another location. This is not home for us. Peter David's in his, not Peter David's son, Peter David's in his commentary, says the church consists of communities of people living outside their native land, which is not Jerusalem or Palestine, but the heavenly city. These people owe their loyalty to that city from which they expect to receive their king. That their life on earth is temporary and that they do not belong is underlined by the use of sojourners. They are pilgrims, foreigners, those who belong to heaven. We're not here to feel the obligation to take up the latest trends, to wear the latest garb, to talk and sound like the latest talk. We're sojourners, we're pilgrims. This is not home for us. We're not making a temporary, a permanent thing out of that which God desired to be temporary for us. B.P. Furnish says, their existence receives its definition and direction from the future, not from the present. From God, not from the world. Yet for a time they are in the world and beset by its claims and contingencies, transitory as they are. So as we suffer living in this world, Peter speaks into this world. But what he gives by way of counsel can only be put on and worn if, if your setting is exile, temporary. This is not my home. See, you, you can't take up the Bible's teaching on worldliness, on how to interact with the world, on what kind of a lifestyle for you to engender in your own life, unless your setting is exile. This is not my home. I'm not seeking to fit in here. I'm not seeking to build my kingdom here. I'm not investing everything about who I am here because this is not my home. 
if you flick the switch in the other direction and this place becomes your home, which is hard for it not to be, isn't it? It's every day. It's so familiar to us. The advertising makes it, makes it sound so enticing. And the biggest problem we have as modern Americans is we don't do delay. You know, I was going to say we don't do delay well. We just don't do delay. The idea that the Bible's promoting, wait, wait, it's coming. It's, it's there. It's coming. It's coming. There's coming a king. There's coming a day. Oh, wait, wait. We, we don't do wait. We're Americans. I don't know. I mean, how do we read the Bible? When the Bible expects for us to be able to delay in a realm of gratification because our home is there. Our reward is there. Listen, if, you, if this becomes your home, then all of your rewards are here. Your ambitions are here. Your value system reflects the value system here because you've got to play the game. If you want to advance here and make your home here, everything you hope that it would become, you've got to play the game. But what if this is not our home? A clear agenda on a first period in caring for the souls of believer is to turn our attention and our hope away from this temporary realm and to set it in our heavenly future home. Matt, go ahead and, and come. This, this is a book that travels out of this meeting and into the stuff that you were angry about this week, that you were scared about, that you cried about. This is a book trafficking in daily life and the suffering of daily life. And we'll get into some of what their suffering was like, but our suffering's not gonna look like theirs, all right? So if you're, if you're wanting to go down their path, uh, you're not gonna find their suffering in our world. You're gonna find our suffering in our world. And these same principles need to help us. All right, so here would be my question for us today. If you were to, I don't know, pick yourself up and turn yourself open and pull open that little panel, what's your setting? Are you set on elect exile? That's who I am. My setting is elect exile. Foreknown, ordained, purposefully the, on the receiving end of God's purposeful intentions throughout my life uniquely given to God's care, favor, and affection in my life. Do you expect the favor of God in your life? You should. If, if your setting says elect on it, it means you uniquely belong to God. You've become his precious people. You are chosen and precious. Those words are related together. If you're walking through this life, whether, whether it is building our hope into these bodies, these bodies are not going to fail us. They're not going to become diseased. They're, they're not going to be broken down. If you're building your hope into finances and the ability to have a large enough bank account to be at peace with the future and to provide for yourself the things that you are believing are going to really provide life for you. you. You may want to check the setting. It, it may not be on exile anymore. It, it may be on 
this is my home. Listen, these are, these are the words that help this letter to get unpacked. Right? We are elect exiles. So I want, I want to close this out this way. I'm, I'm hoping you got my text. Um, that, was, that was foreordained from the foundations of the world. So I didn't really have to worry about a lot that he didn't get my text. But <laughs> right, right now, I know that there are folks here right now who suffering is the headlines. It, it's, it's the feature event going on. And in the significance of how that feels, it can almost distract us from all other truths. Now, can we do this? Because I know you're, you're going to walk out of here and you're going to return to your suffering. And what can happen for us in a meeting like this is why it's so critical, why fellowship is not something you want to treat optionally, while hearing the word is not something you just want to get around to. Because God will meet you in this moment and deposit something into your life that, to, that this week when you go into your realm of suffering, that there's some powerful truth from God. I, I hope it's just these two words that bump into you all week long. Elect exiles. Elect exiles. And all that that communicates to us. But I just I want to grab that last point. This is not our home. Some of your situations are, are just gut-wrenching and, and disappointing. The worst of your experiences, this is temporary. This is not your home. Any day now. Can you start thinking that way? Any day now, we're going home. Now, if that doesn't appeal to you, you might be discovering a little bit of, of why God allows there to be suffering. He doesn't want you falling in love with this location, He doesn't want to return for His bride, who looks like Lot's wife. You know, thanks for coming back for us, but I'm really not ready to go. Oh, what a terrible thing that would be. He's coming back for a bride who can't wait to get out of here and be with him. In a place that's described in an unbelievable way. So here's what I, I want you to be affected by when you leave. Uh, when we go home, and we're not home, when we go home, what a celebration. What an amazing place we are going to. So let's put aside our suffering for a moment and let's, let's celebrate the fact that we are exiles and we are going home. Amen. Let's stand up together.